And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, where we'll be in verses 1 to 26. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 26. And so, understanding is important. You see, the ability to comprehend, it is essential. One thing we know is that the question, do you understand, is asked from childhood all the way throughout adulthood. Because there is an expectation for one to consider and comprehend something after it has been taught or demonstrated. You see, after a parent teaches their toddler a new command, they would ask, do you understand? After a teacher teaches a new lesson to their class, they will ask their students, do you understand? After employers train new employees, they will ask them, do you understand? You see, where we are in Mark's gospel Jesus has repeatedly demonstrated his identity to his disciples, and yet we will see in this morning's passage that they still lack understanding. And the reason for their misunderstanding, the reason for their lack of understanding, is their hardened hearts. So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 26, please stand for the reading of God's word. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered them, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground, taking the seven loaves. He gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. And he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? 12, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. 
And he said to them, don't you understand yet? They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this morning's passage is Jesus' words and works should lead us to trust him and have a right understanding of who he is. Jesus' words and works should lead us to trust him and have a right understanding of who he is. This passage can be broken into three scenes. First, we will see provision from bread. Then we will see the problem of unbelief. And third, we will see a progression of sight. Provision from bread, the problem of unbelief, the progression of sight. First, the provision from bread. Look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. And so Jesus and his disciples, they are in the region of the Decapolis, and this is a primarily Gentile region. He's been received well among the Gentiles, seeing that this large crowd of people, they have come to him and they have been with him and around him for three days. You see, this crowd, as they came to be with him, they came prepared. They thought it may, be, it may have been a retreat, and so they brought food. But they've been with him for three days, and so now provision has been expended. They are hungry, and Jesus knows and so what does he do? The first thing he does is he summons the disciples and he briefed them on the situation. He told them what's happening. And his very first words to the disciples is, I have compassion on the crowd. You see, Jesus is compassionate. His innermost being is being moved with pity at their physical suffering. You see, Jesus, he fills it within himself in light of their plight. And what is unique about this is who he has compassion towards. You see, this crowd is not primarily Jews, but it's primarily Gentiles. You see, Jesus has compassion upon the Gentiles, the very people that the Jews hated. Jesus is showing compassion. You see, beloved, his, he, Jesus doesn't discriminate with his compassion. You see, no ethnicity is a prerequisite for his pity. His mercy is impartial. And not only that, but Jesus also doesn't evaluate the level of suffering before he responds with compassion. 
You see, there is no threshold of suffering for one to cross in order to solicit Jesus' compassion. You see, he is compassionate towards Jews and Gentiles. He's compassionate towards suffering, both physical and spiritual. It moves him to show compassion. And beloved, the Lord Jesus, he has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Though exalted, he is fully acquainted with the sufferings of his people. You see, his compassion today is the same as it has always been. Are you suffering, physical or spiritual? Are you burdened and discouraged? The Lord Jesus knows, and he has compassion. He has compassion, and he is working for our good even now. And so we can trust him. Look at verse 3. He says, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. And some of them have come a long distance. See, Jesus, he is fully aware of what would happen. He's not speaking in hypothetical, but he's fully aware that if he were to send them home hungry, people would collapse. And he ain't feeling that. You see, he wants to avoid this from happening. You see, his compassion, it moves him to have action, to show action. And the question for us is, do we reflect this type of compassion? Is our response the very same towards people who are suffering, whether it's physical suffering or spiritual? Do we have compassion and, is it move, and are we moved to actions? When we see one suffering physically, do we strive to give relief? If we see one suffering from sin, do we pray? Do we evangelize? Do we remind them of the hope of Jesus Christ and his goodness and his supremacy? Beloved, how do we respond when we see members suffering? Do we just say, I feel for them and go on by our business? Because if we do, then we are not reflecting the compassion of Jesus. You see, Jesus, he didn't just admit his compassion, but he was moved to action. And saints, our response should be the same, especially with covenant members. Look at verse 4. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? You see, here we see mission impossible. They are in a desolate place, 4,000 people. And they're like, man, where are we going to go to get this food? To get enough to supply bread for them. Now, one may wonder, like, man, didn't they see Jesus feed the 5,000? Like, why ain't they asking him what you going to do? Well, the thing is, I don't think they want to assume that Jesus was going to provide for them through a mighty act. And so they're just like, where's bread? Like, where can anyone go to get bread? But look how Jesus responded. Verse 5, how many loaves do you have? He asked them. See, don't worry about any, what, what can anyone else do, but how many loaves do you have? He tells them to make an inventory check. They check and they come back and say seven loaves. You see, seven loaves in the hands of the disciples feeds probably 12 people. Seven loaves in the hands of the Son of God is sufficient to feed 4,000. And look what Jesus does. He commanded them, he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. 
Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. So Jesus commands them to sit, takes the bread, prays a prayer of thanksgiving, enlists the disciples to serve, and they begin to serve. And once again, what we see is that Jesus has provided for a very large crowd with very little resources. What we see here is that Jesus supplied and he enlisted the disciples to serve. You see, the disciples, their responsibility was to go from Jesus, go to Jesus, get the bread from Jesus, and then go to the crowd. They were to repeatedly do that. Go to Jesus, get the food, go to the crowd, and feed the food. Give them to the crowd. You see, the disciples, they were to be the middle man. Their responsibility was to faithfully serve what Jesus has supplied. You see, their work was not extraordinary. It was not glamorous, but it was simple faithfulness. Go to Jesus, get the bread, give the bread to the crowd. And this is an application for us as it regards ministry. You see, beloved, we are servants of Christ. And God has enlisted us to serve him faithfully in whatever ministry capacity that he has given us. You see, our spiritual gifts, they are from the Lord. And they are to be used to serve others for their good. You see, beloved, we are servants, not chefs. You see, we don't cook the food, but we serve the food of God's word. And not only that, but when we get the food to serve, we don't take it and add our own spices to it and then serve it. We can't try to perfect it because you cannot perfect what is already perfect. Instead, what we are to do is faithfully serve what Jesus has supplied. And so a question for us is in your service, is your goal faithfulness or is it flashiness? Are you serving for the good of others to God's glory? Or are you serving so that you may be remembered and exalted? May it be the former. And when we are tempted towards the latter, may we confess that and deny ourselves and follow the Lord Christ and serve faithfully. You see, beloved, Jesus supplied, the disciples served, and look what happened. Verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. The crowd was satisfied. You see, Jesus, he fed and filled them. And it is the same in ministry. He supplies and satisfies. We only serve. Look at verse 8 again. It says, Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. You see, Jesus, he is sufficiently supplied food for 4,000 people. And there were seven baskets of leftovers. You guys don't miss this. This is an act of God. You see, no person can adequately feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a, few, and a few fish. But Jesus can because of who he is. 
You see, he is the Son of God in human flesh, and he repeatedly demonstrates his deity by his mighty acts. You see, in the wilderness, God supplied for for Israel by raining manna from heaven. Well, in this desolate place, the Son of God has sufficiently fed thousands of people with bread. And he didn't do it once, but he did it twice. And all of this is intended to disclose his identity. You see, we should ponder and consider what this mighty act reveals about Jesus. And it should lead us to trust him and have a right understanding of who he is. Now, I understand that we have read a similar account before. See, it was just about a month ago we read about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so with this passage, it could be easy for us to be unimpressed by this mighty act, seeing that Jesus already fed 5,000 with less. Now, if that's you, I would want to caution you real quick because we should never be unimpressed with Jesus. We should always be in awe of him. You see, he should never bore us. The feeding of 4,000 is no less a miracle than the feeding of 5,000. If you don't believe me, why don't you try it? Go out there, try to serve 4,000 Memphians with seven loaves of bread and two fish and see how many people you serve. You see, this is a mighty act. And may we be on guard against losing interest in Jesus because we've seen this before. You see, Jesus' mighty acts should never bore us. And if they do, then the problem is not Jesus. The problem is us. You see, Mark, somebody may wonder, like, why is this recorded a second time? I'm going to say, Mark, he recorded this to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. That is his thesis, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, talking about who, how Jesus, who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and the entire book is defending that claim because of who he, Jesus truly is. Look at verse 10. It says that he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. And so Jesus, he dismisses the crowd, gets his crew, and he goes to Dalmanutha, which is on the west side of the lake of Galilee. You see, what we see is that Jesus has provided sufficiently with a few bread. Now we see the problem of unbelief. Look at verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven. And so the Pharisees, they traveled to Jesus, and they are opposing him once again. This is what they always do. And the dispute is about Jesus' ministry. You see, they demand for him to prove himself by performing a sign. You see, what they're getting at is that they would say that they're implying that such miraculous sign would show that God is at work through Jesus. At least that's what they say. Did you catch the real reason why they did it? It said to test him. You see, they want to test Jesus. This, this demand is disingenuous. They have ulterior motives. You see, they demand a sign from Jesus so that it can add fuel to their fire of condemnation that they may put him to death. Now, one may wonder how so. Well, what's happening here, the backdrop is Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. 
where the Lord commanded Israel to beware of false prophets performing signs. He tells them to not listen to them, but rather to put them to death. You see, the Pharisees, they have hard hearts and they don't believe in Jesus. And it is expressed, it is displayed here. You see, they don't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They don't believe him to be the Son of God. Rather, they believe him to be a false prophet, a worker of Satan. And so they're demanding him to perform this sign so that they can witness it, label him a false prophet, and have him put to death. They are testing Jesus. The sad thing is, the reality is, they have already seen signs that testify to who Jesus truly is. You see, they heard about the lame man walking, that Jesus, Jesus did that. They witnessed Jesus restore a man's withered hand. They saw or heard exorcisms that Jesus performed. And all these signs, they rejected. It's because their hearts are hard. Their minds are made up about Jesus, and no evidence could convince them otherwise. You see, when there's a hard heart and a mind made up, it is difficult to convince people. Despite the evidence that you could present, they would only explain it away. You see, it's like trying to convince some people of the reality of racism in America. They would disagree regardless of the evidence that you would present. You could tell them about the transatlantic slavery. You could tell them about the Confederacy. You could tell them about the lynching of African Americans or Jim Crow or redlining or segregation or the KKK or the war on drugs or gentrification or police brutality. And the list goes on. You could tell them all these things and they will stand their ground. They will explain it all away. They won't be convinced. But the problem is not evidence, but it's a hard heart and unbelief. You see, the Pharisees' problem wasn't proof, but it's their unbelief. They are blinded by their own sin, and they have hard hearts. And this is one of the problems of unbelief, because a hard heart will get one to miss out on Jesus. They are missing him and the salvation that he offers because their hearts are hardened. And look how Jesus responded. Verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And so Jesus, he responds with grief and disappointment as he sighs. And he is disappointed at their persistent unbelief, opposition, and rejection of himself. And so he rejects, he rejects their requests. He declares that no sign will be given. And in the Greek, this is a self-imprecation, meaning he is saying, if a sign is given, may I die. You see, Jesus, he is no genie who performs signs upon one's requests. He refuses to yield to their demands. And he won't, respond, he won't perform a sign in response to one's unbelief. He's not going to try to perform a sign just to convince one when their hearts are hard. Verse 13, it says he left them, got back into the boat, and he went to the other side. You see, he's indignant. He gets in the boat, he chunks the deuce. He, he's rejected, 
And so he's out. You see, this is, again, as I said earlier, this is the problem of unbelief. You miss out on Jesus, and you result in judgment. You see, the Son of God is before them, and they have rejected him. And such rejection will only result in judgment. Y'all get this, all forms of unbelief, rejection, hostility, carelessness, or indifference will result in all the same, which is judgment, because what is going on is a refusal to trust in Jesus Christ, the only one in whom there is salvation. And so if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I would urge you today to not reject Jesus Christ, but to trust in him for salvation. Believe that he is the son of God who came and died for sin and resurrected from the grave. That he saves all who trust in him. You see, the reality is if unbelief results in judgment, then belief, faith, and trust results in salvation. It results in deliverance from God's wrath. It results in being reconciled to God and being adopted into his family. It results in so many more blessings. And so if you're not a Christian, I would urge you this day, do not persist in your unbelief, but to trust in Jesus. If you want to discuss more, you can talk to any of our members after service. We'd be glad to discuss with you about this. Look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them. And so they're in the boat. They forgot to get their bread and a dispute arises. They're upset like, man, who forgot to grab the bread? They're upset about this lack of provision. Only one loaf. Look at Jesus, verse 15. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You see, Jesus, see, Jesus, for Jesus, this encounter with the Pharisees, it is still on his mind. And so he speaks to the disciples with all seriousness. He gives two commands. He tells them to be careful and to be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, one may wonder, what? <laughs> what is the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees? Do they own a bakery? Is Jesus saying that we can't eat their bread? Not at all. But to understand this command, one must first know what leaven is. You see, leaven is a small amount of yeast that can soak and then it permeates. It spreads. You see, in Scripture, normally leaven is referred to as wickedness. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's getting at is that a person's sin is pervasive and it can corrupt an entire congregation. Well, one may wonder, well, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? They're so different. What is it that they have in common? Well, context shows that, man, the leaven here is a persistent unbelief, an adversarial opposition towards Jesus and demanding signs from him. One may say, well, I see that with the Pharisees, but what about Herod? He ain't in this passage. Well, Herod, too, opposed Jesus. You see, he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. 
But then also in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, Jesus appeared before Herod. Herod was glad to see him, and Herod demanded Jesus to perform a sign. Just as the Pharisees demanded Jesus to perform a sign, so Herod, is doing the, so Herod did the very same thing in Luke chapter 23, verse 8. And so Jesus, he commands him, beware of that leaven. You see, in this command, it reveals another problem of unbelief, is that it can permeate. You see, just as a person's sin can permeate, so can unbelief. You see, if one is not careful, they can be affected by this leaven to where they disbelieve in Jesus and oppose him, which will result in destruction. This is why we are to hold firm to our confidence in Jesus, trusting in him, encouraging one another, and persevering to the very end. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 will say it this way. He would say, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that your hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the very end. You see, unbelief and opposition towards Jesus, it is contagious like a common cold, but it's deadly like cancer. And the reality is this can happen subtly, where one begins to doubt Jesus and begins to demand for him to perform a sign for him to prove his goodness towards us. Well, what could this look like for us? We could be demanding him to perform some sort of sign of healing. It could be demanding for a better job or a spouse or children. Such disposition, what it does, it ignores what Jesus has done, redeeming us by his very blood, reconciling us to God, sending us the Holy Spirit, assuring us of his presence, how he has gone before us and will prepare a place for us. It ignores those blessings and more. And it places oneself over the Son of God, forcing him to prove himself according to our standards. Such heart posture. It is an expression of unbelief. And if we don't repent of it, it can really do damage to our souls. And so a question to consider is what ways are you inclined to demand Jesus to perform a sign to prove his goodness towards you, to prove himself towards you? This will be good to discuss with other members. And beloved, may we pray for one another in light of this. May we pray for one another in light of what we hear as we discuss this with one another. That we be on guard against this type of leaven, this unbelief, this opposition, this demanding for Jesus to prove himself towards us. He's already proved it. He died, he resurrected. He is the son of God and we don't need to put him through hoops. For he is the Son of God. We should only obey him, submit to him, and trust him for who he is and what he has done. Verse 16, it says, They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. And so Jesus, he gave this command, and the, the disciples, they completely missed it. They are arguing about a lack of bread. And look what happened. Verse 17, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact 
You have no bread. Don't you understand or comprehend? You see, Jesus, he knows their discussion, and he rebukes them. And this rebuke is in the form of several questions. You see, the disciples, they were concerned about the lack of bread when the Lord of heaven was present before them. They were consumed with insufficient provision when the provider is present in the boat. You see, what Jesus is getting at is that you don't need bread. You need him. He is the supplier. But they didn't get it. They failed to grasp the truth of who was with him. You see, they should have understood the reality of who Jesus is. He expected them to understand, especially after being with him for this time and witnessing his mighty acts. But they were spiritually blind. And look what Jesus says. He says, do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? You see, their hard hearts is the reason why they don't have understanding. The problem is not revelation, but it's them. And then Jesus, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, where in that context, Israel had hard hearts. They had ears but didn't hear. They had eyes but didn't see. And in chapter 4, when Jesus gave the parables and he began to explain to the disciples, he quoted some of the same similar words about the, par- about the, the crowd when they had ears but not hear and eyes but not saw. And what Jesus is saying is that it is currently true of the disciples. You see, they should have deliberately reflected and pondered on Jesus' teaching, his mighty acts, and understood what they convey. You see, they should have had faith. And what this is, it should have been faith seeking to understand. But no, they didn't consider it. They didn't consider his mighty acts or his works. And the disciples, they were culpable for their own lack of understanding. You see, the reality is, illumination and understanding, it comes from God. And at the same time, people are responsible for their lack of understanding. You see, sin blinds us from God. Where there is no faith, no thinking, no reflection will inevitably lead to no understanding. And one will give an account for their own failure to grasp the significance of who Jesus is. You see, where there is faith and where one ponders and thinks and meditates, the Lord gives understanding. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, where he says, Think on these things, and the Lord will give you understanding. Jesus continues his questions. He says, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? You see, Jesus, he reminds them of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. These mighty acts, they were to disclose Jesus' identity, but the disciples missed it. You see, here we see Jesus is concerned about understanding. You see, understanding Jesus is of the utmost importance. You see, life hinges upon a right understanding of who Jesus 
is. You see, to know him is to believe the truth about him. And to that, we would have eternal life. But a failure to grasp the truth about Jesus is an expression of unbelief, and it will result in judgment. You see, here the disciples, they were following Jesus, but they were spiritually blind. They didn't understand. But they will soon understand because God will reveal the truth to them about Jesus. And so we've seen the problem of unbelief. And now, let's look at a progression of sight. Look at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And so Jesus, he crossed the Sea of Galilee in Bethsaida. And once again, we see a large crowd coming to him. And they're bringing with him a man who was blind. He wasn't born blind, but he became blind. He has lost his sight. And the crowd, they are begging Jesus to touch him and heal him. You see, this is a similar story to what we've seen last week when the crowd brought the man who was deaf and practically mute. And look what Jesus does. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. And so Jesus, once again, he has a private encounter with this man, with another man. He spits, lays hands, but he does something unusual. He asked about the effectiveness of the mighty act. Now, he has never done that before. He has never healed someone and asked, are you healed? But he has touched this man's eyes and he asked, do you see anything? Now, one may be wondering, well, what is happening here? Is this, was this miracle too difficult? Was this too hard for Jesus that he didn't necessarily fully heal him the first time he touched him? Well, I would say absolutely not. This miracle is certainly not too hard. Blind eyes, opening blind eyes is not too difficult. Jesus has done way more difficult things. Like in chapter 5 when he raised Jairus' daughter from being dead. Well, what's happening here? Well, I would say Jesus, he chooses to gradually restore this man's sight. Instead of doing it instantly, he does it in stages. And this man's sight, it was partially restored. Look what he says. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. But Jesus wasn't done. Look at verse 25. It says, again, he placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And so Jesus, he places his hands on the man's eyes and he healed him completely. The man looked intently and suddenly he has 20-20 vision. You see, the man, he goes from blind to partially seeing to having full sight. Jesus has given sight to the blind. And what this does is it fulfills a messianic expectation. Like I read last week, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. It says, the eyes of the blind will be opened. And Jesus can do this because of who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And here we see a progression of sight. 
no sight, to partial sight, to complete sight. And it's all by Jesus. He did it all. A mighty act that he has performed. Now, I believe that Mark placed this here because it foreshadows the spiritual understanding of the disciples. You see, what preceded this part right here, this section, is that Jesus was asking his disciples, do you not understand? They lack spiritual understanding of who Jesus is. And then Jesus takes this man from no sight to partial sight to full sight. And what comes after this passage is that the, Jesus will ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter will confess that you are the Christ. Their eyes will be opened by God. And though their eyes were opened, spiritually, they will have partial spiritual sight because Jesus will begin to testify to his work and Peter will rebuke him because they do not fully understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. See, I believe that Mark placed this here as a foreshadowing of what will happen with the disciples. They will go from spiritually blind to being able to see but not fully understanding not fully comprehending, but God will open their eyes. You see, beloved, Jesus, he gave sight to this blind man. You see, Jesus, what Jesus did for this man physically, the Lord has done for us who are in Christ spiritually. You see, like this man, once we were spiritually blind. We were blinded by our sin, yet God in his grace chose to open our eyes to where we can see Christ rightly. And then we repented and placed our faith in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 would say it this way. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, by God's grace alone, We who are in Christ, we know him for who he is, and we've placed our faith in him. You see, this faith and right understanding of Jesus, it is not by our own wisdom. It is not by our own brilliance, but it's by God's grace. He has revealed his son to us. The Spirit has regenerated us, causing us to be born again. He's given us the gifts of faith and repentance, and then we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, by God's grace alone, we went from being blind to having sight. You see, we know and believe the truth about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he died and resurrected that he saved, that he ascended on high, and that he will one day return. We know these truths because of God's grace. You see, he has opened our eyes. Like the lyrics of the song, the hymn, O Great God, they will put it this way. It says, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joy. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. You see, beloved, this is what God has done for us in Christ. By God's grace, we have eyes to see. 
by God's grace, we understand. And now that we see and understand, may we continually behold the glory of the Lord. Now that we can see him for who he is, may our eyes not be taken away from him. As said in Scripture, may we behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into his very same image from one degree of glory to the next. May we behold him until that day where we will see him as he is. And on that day, we will be made like him. And so, saints, may we hold fast to Christ, hold fast to the gospel, maintain a right understanding of who Jesus is that's seen in Scripture, and be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are so gracious towards us in Christ. God, that you would open our blind eyes, that you would unstop our deaf ears, that you would give the gift of faith, that you would grant repentance, and that you would save us by your grace. Father, may we hold fast to the Lord Jesus. May we remember that his words and works should lead us to trust him and have a right understanding of him. God, may we behold him daily, all the way to the day where we will be with him. May we encourage one another in these truths and be on guard. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.